So last week, uh, the sermon was on uh, the Lord's Prayer. And the last part of that was uh, lead us not into temptation. And I said I would talk about that, and then I never did. So I'm, I'm going to spend a little bit of time right now uh, unpacking that a bit. Lead us not into temptation. And that, that, just at the surface of it, it is kind of disturbing. Like the image is uh, our God our Father is purposely leading us into a place of temptation. But even, even that tells us something about the way we understand how, our, our image for temptation. So the word in Greek, lead us on to temptation, the word for temptation is pyrasmos. We get the English word pirate from, from that. And in, uh, the word pyrasmos, it also is in James. Remember that, that especially in the first chapter of James, there's a discussion of uh, when you encounter difficulties of many, of many times. He calls them trials. So the, uh, the, word, the word pyrasmos or temptation can mean either temptation or trial. Those are equally viable, licit translations. And we, those are two very different images to us. So the basic idea, I think, is this. In our culture, we place the emphasis when we are tempted on the intent of the tempter. Like we're, if you're old enough, you'll, you'll know when I say Gomer Pyle, that'll mean something to you. Uh, if you're not, I'm, I, I don't, I'm sorry. I'm, I stopped paying attention uh, to TV 30 years ago. So I don't know a, a, a better image for if you're younger. But uh, an innocent kind of bumbler. So the idea for us is, uh, I'm just walking along, innocent, pure as the driven snow, and then someone comes along and tempts me. So it's that person's fault. It's his fault, or it's her fault. And we even sort of assume, like, in, in the way we understand that, that verse uh, from the Lord's Prayer, lead us not into temptation, as if God would intend to tempt us. But uh, the biblical notion is, uh, lays emphasis on, not on the intent of the tempter, but on our response to the situation. Does that make sense? So we encounter, we encounter a, a complex, a morally complex situation. We, may, we probably weren't seeking, uh, seeking one out, but it just happens. And, um, and it's up to us. It's, it's our, it's our, it's our uh, reaction to it that, that, that determines if, whether it was a temptation for us or a test. If we give in, then that was a temptation. We're the ones who chose door number three, the temptation door, or door number one, you know, the test door. So the idea of lead us on into temptation is um, not help us avoid morally complex situations. I think that's, even if you stayed home all day, that'd be hard to do. Um, but uh, help us, uh, Father, when we're in those, to choose the right one. Does that make sense? So that's the em emphasis. Phew, I've been worried about that all week long. So, <laughs> so I'm, re I'm really happy to be here today. Uh, I think I may have said something like this before, but you know, your pastor, Wayne, uh, I'm, I'm proud that we're, to call him a friend. Uh, I hope he calls me a friend, and, is, you know, and is, if he does, he's proud of that too. I don't know, but, I, but for my part, uh, I'm proud to call him a friend, so happy to be here. Uh, the text we chose, I chose for today is Joshua 2. So you might want to turn to that in your Bibles. It's going to be the whole chapter, and I've called it uh, Lessons from the Unknown. So uh, even though I've got, uh, like, like if I had a PowerPoint, it'd be a pretty complex one. Lots of different sub points. 
So I'm going to try to make it real clear as we, as we move along uh, how my thought process is, is, is progressing. My thought process is progressing. That's sort of saying the same thing twice, uh, developing. Um, but I think, you know, uh, but it, it, it is a text that uh, opens itself up to, to, uh, to thinking and rethinking and thinking with your head and with your heart and, uh, and, and uh, through the lens of your own experience. So uh, I'm not saying that I've got it all wired. I think this is going to be a, a text where we can have, like to have some uh, dialogue. Like what, what do you see in it? What do you see as the possibilities? So uh, I'm going to read in just a second. Uh, this is the, obviously the second chapter of Joshua. Um, it's one of the Bible's best-known stories. It's just brimming over with drama and danger and the unexpected. You know, Moses, the leader, the trusted leader, the hero, one, one, as, as, as uh, prominent a hero as you get in the history of Israel, has just died. And his lieutenant, his trusted lieutenant Joshua, right? I mean, could there be a more trustworthy lieutenant than Joshua. Just always there, always faithful, uh, but he's always been number two. And I don't know if you've thought much about this, but you know, sometimes, uh, no matter how great a number two you are, you don't make a good number one. Right? There's a different skill set, or maybe even a different time, or just a different, uh, a different vibe. You know, people are used to seeing you as number two, uh, and they can't, they can't even imagine you in this, you know, in this other role. Let's say so. It, it's it's not at all certain that he's going to be uh, real successful in this, and um, it's it's a it's also a major challenge. I mean, most most of Moses' life was wandering around, just you know, waiting for that generation to go to the next thing, you know. So, uh, but now now they're right at the edge of of of, in, of entering the land, Syria. I mean, that, that that's like something you've been waiting for, planning for for a long time. It's like this is your not so much their one shot, but the last time they had a shot at this, they blew it big time. So it's really, impo it's really important to get this one right. And I don't know if you've ever been to uh, this, uh, this part of the world, uh, but if, if you haven't, uh, I don't know, if you can imagine uh, sort of a combination of, of southern Nevada and, uh, you know, and maybe, uh, maybe even the, the, the area like between Fresno and Bakersfield. Right? I mean, it's like, I, I, this isn't really nice, and I, if any of you are from there, I'm sorry, but I, I always feel kind of like, like I've never driven through like an area that's been contaminated by, by atomic, you know, explosions, but I kind of feel like it's that way. Like, roll up your windows and, you know, press the speed limit and uh, get through. I mean, it is, so it, it is, um, uh, it, it's the Jordan Valley, and the Jordan River is not very impressive. It's, you know, like Dry Creek going through Roseville is, you know, right up there with the Jordan River in terms of, terms of size and flow, but there's a, 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 there is like a valley, just a smooth uh, sort of incline up to the Judean hills. And those hills can be, uh, they can be like uh, uh, a sedimentary cliff, very imposing, and then, or they can be a little more rounded, but the, but the whole idea is like, like if you gathered all the plant life for hundreds of square miles on those hills and shoved it all together in one spot, it wouldn't even fill this room. I mean, it's like really, really desolate. So, I mean, they're out there, and just survival itself is, I mean, they can't just hang around out there in the desert indefinitely. There's nothing, there, there's nothing to, uh, to help you survive. So it, it's, it's really complicated. So um, 
Uh, and there are, two, there are two main characters here. And they're, they're the only two that are even mentioned by name in this chapter. Joshua, well-known, and then this woman, Rahab. Uh, a prostitute. Right? That's, that's, you know, when I was a youth pastor, that was my number one criteria. You know, find prostitutes to be youth workers so long as, you know... I mean, it, I'm just kind of kidding there, obviously. <laughs> but I mean, I, I mean what, what, what a contrast from sterling uh, resume on the part of Joshua to maybe a, someone who, uh, for many of us, would be the last person you know, we, would, we would find if we were just looking at her resume to be a hero for this story. So uh, from, I'm going to say the unknown. There's a lot of unknowns. Will Joshua be successful? How will they enter the land? Will they... Will, uh, will they Will they satisfy God's call? And then, the, and then who's, going to be the, who's going to be our allies here? Who, can we, who, can, who will God uh, send to be our, you know, to be our, uh, uh, to give us comfort and, and aid? And really? You're going to send us a prostitute? I think most of us would just miss that one, Right? Like that joke about you know I'm 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 stuck on my roof and the flood waters are coming up and I'm praying to God and you know there's a helicopter and somebody comes by on a boat and you know we're waiting for something like a golden chariot to come down and God's saying hey, I sent you a helicopter and a boat I mean you know what do you what do you want here so how do we so the, it's a question too of um, who's the true Israelite who's the true follower of God what is leadership how does God how does God operate how do we see with his eyes and not our own? So here we go. Joshua 2. Then Joshua, son of Nun, secretly spent, sent two spies from Shittim. So that, that means uh, place of the acacias. So it's just on the other side of the Jordan River. And by the way, I mean, it's, it's as far away as like, I mean, we're closer. Uh, uh, he would be closer to Jericho probably than we are to the Roseville Galleria. Or maybe it's about that far. And with nothing in between. So you could see it in the distance. Go look over the land, he said, especially Jericho. So they went and entered the house of a prostitute named Rahab and stayed there. The king of Jericho was told, look, some of the Israelites will come here tonight to spy out the land. So the king of Jericho sent his message, this message to Rahab. Bring up the men who came to you and entered your house, because they have come to spy out the whole land. But the woman had taken the two men and hidden them. She said, yep, the men, no, she didn't say yep. Yes, the men came to me, but I did not know where they had come from. At dusk, when it was time to close the city gate, the men left. I don't know which way they went. Go after them quickly. You may catch up with them. But she had taken them up to the roof and hidden them under the stalks of flax she had laid out on the roof. So the men set out in pursuit of the spies on the road that leads to the fords of the Jordan. And as soon as the pursuers had gone out, the gate was shut. Before the spies lay down for the night, she went up on the roof and said to them, I know that the Lord has given this land to you and that a great fear of you has fallen on us. So that all who live in this country are melting in fear because of you. We have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea for you when you came out of Egypt. And what you did to Sihon and Og, the two kings of the Amorites east of the Jordan, whom you completely destroyed. When we heard of it, our hearts melted and everyone's courage failed because of you. For the Lord your God is God in heaven above and on earth below. Now then, please swear to me by the Lord that you will show kindness to my, my family 
because I have shown kindness to you. Give me a sure sign that you will spare the lives of my father and mother, my brothers and sisters, and all who belong to them, and that you will save us from death. Our lives, for your lives, the men assured her. If you don't tell us, if you don't tell what we are doing, we will treat you kindly and faithfully when the Lord gives us this land. So she let them down by a rope through the window, for the house she lived in was part of the city wall. Now she had said to them, Go to the hills so the pursuers will not find you. Hide yourself there three days until they return, and then go on your way. So geographically, they've gone out, the, the, the men from the city have gone out looking for them. They've gone out east toward the Jordan. She sends them just a little bit west into the surrounding hills to hide there. Then the men, uh, the men said to her, This oath you made us uh, swear will not be binding on us unless when we enter the land you have tied this scarlet cord in the window through which you let us down, and unless you have brought your father and mother, your brothers, and all your family into your house. If anyone goes outside your house into the street, his blood will be on his own head. We will not be responsible. As for anyone who is in the house with you, his blood will be on our head if a hand is laid on him. But if you tell what we are doing, we will be released from the oath you made us swear. Agreed, she said. She replied, let it be as you say. So she sent them away and they departed. And she tied the scarlet cord and she tied the scarlet cord in the window. When they left, they went into the hills and stayed there three days until the pursuers had searched all along the road and returned without finding them. Then the two men started back. They went down out of the hills, forded the river and came to Joshua, son of Nun, and told them everything that had happened to them. They said to Joshua, the Lord has surely given the whole land into our hands. All the people are melting in fear because of us. So first off, what do you, what do you see? What strikes you about this story? Divine, divine protection. Yeah, it's divine protection. And they, they sort of assume it, right? I mean, they, they, don't, they encounter it, but they're pretty sure they're, you know, they're, they're certain, actually, it's going ahead of them. And, and uh, yeah, I think that's exactly right. What else do you see? Yeah, a lot of trust. Yeah, I mean, there's, there's some trust right away between the spies and this woman. I want to know why they went to the house of the harlot to begin with. Yeah, that, that, that's almost shocking, right? I mean, like, okay, we're God's messengers. We're in dangerous territory. Let's go to the house of a harlot. That's the step number right here in the instruction book. Step two, you know. That's, that, I mean, it doesn't, yeah, the text is just, um, does try to hide it? Like, we might try to hide it. Yeah, there's the, her, her faith, and, and so it, it's based on, um, right, what does she say? We heard what your God did. Starting way back in Egypt. That's 40 years before. So part of this as an aside is, um, uh, you know, our faith, the Christian faith, the Jewish faith, they're based on history. God acts in history. We know what he's like based on what he's done, and that's, it's historical. Um, and uh, our, our faith, the, the Christian faith, is, uh, is connected, obviously, to Judaism, but you know, powerfully, St. Paul, for instance, lodges in, in, uh, in his letters, wow, if Christ wasn't raised, if that isn't a historical fact, then, we should, then we're, we're, we should, we're to be pitied. Christianity is, makes, calls upon history. It's based on the historicity of those events. So, yeah, that's right. What else do you see? Don't put God or people in 
Yeah. Yeah, don't put God or people in a box. That's a big, yeah, it's, I want to develop that theme. That's hugely, I mean, it seems really obvious, like being hit across the face, you know, slapped across the face right away in this text. They went to a, the house of a harlot. They didn't say, having gone to the respectable homes, and no one was, you know, no one answered. Okay, I'd like to uh, proceed in, in sort of by asking, uh, or, or in three broad uh, categories, talk first about what I'm calling an unknown future. Um, and uh, I'm going to talk secondly about uh, this question, who will God use, which is, I'm going to say, unlook for answers. And then finally, um, the third category is going to be unexpected others. So if you're, if you, some people feel uh, they, they enjoy and it helps them to do an outline. Um, others don't like it. So anyway, I'm going to try to give you some of that outline for those of you who, uh, who appreciate that. Uh, so uh, as I said, the spies you know, leave from Shittim, uh, the place of the acacia trees. Uh, we talked a little bit about, uh, about Joshua's background, but these, he's now number one, and they've never entered the land before. And the first time they did, they, they messed it up. So I'm, 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 I think there's a lot. There's got to be a lot of uncertainty and uh, even some uh, tremulousness as they as they think about this endeavor, um, and they're going into an unknown future. Uh, so a couple of reflections, I think, and we can see this in the text. Um, the you know the promise is there. I want you to think about this idea. The promise is there, but we have to live into it. I think an image that I think is helpful for sometimes when, I, when, I'm, when I'm teaching uh, seminary students uh, about the Christian life is, um, well, it's that image from the jail cell. I think I maybe mentioned this last week, the Paul conjures in Galatians. Before we come to faith in Christ, we are captives. We're captives to our own, our own desire, right? We can, we, right? It's never satisfied, right? Never. As soon as you get what you, what you long for, Maybe even you know, like an hour later, like that that, that unquenchable desire is next. Schopenhauer, the, the, the philosopher Schopenhauer said, "Life is is life is horrible. Life is horrible because you can never end the cycle of desire. It's just much better to die." Let's see. Is there any hope there? No, there's no hope there. There's not, not even one drop of, wow. So, I mean, th- this, and this is, the, this is the dilemma uh, of the human experience. And uh, so Paul says, wow, before we come to faith in Christ, we are caught in that jail cell. We can never get past that. But once we come to faith in Christ and the Holy Spirit comes to live in us, then the jail door has opened and we can walk out of it. We have to live into it. So it isn't so much like, like a forensic, a legal thing. Yes, legally, we are set free. But experientially, we've got to live into it. So a big part of this lesson here is, wow, learn how to live into the promise of God, the future that God has offered us. Um, so walking forward. How do we walk forward? I'm going to suggest maybe five or six steps to how we walk forward, how we live into an unknown future. The first is, have a plan. So Joshua clearly has got a plan. He doesn't just cross the Jordan and say, let's see what happens. Let's just take it one step at a time. 
he sends spies ahead. Let's figure out what the situation is like. Does that make sense? Have a plan. My dad just say, you know, if you don't aim at anything, you hit it every time. <laughs> right? So have a plan. Figure out what, and, and having a plan requires a lot of hard work. You've got to figure out, what am I really trying to accomplish? Number one. Number two, how will I know if I've been successful? And number three, hmm, am I trying to do so many things that I don't get any of them done? So what are the most important things? You know, what's critically important and what's merely uh, a good thing? So have a plan. Um, in the Peloponne- in uh, Thucydides, his uh, uh, great history of the Peloponnesian War, he uh, uh, the Athenians, who turn out to be bullies, they're, they're, on, they're on a little island called Milos, and they're trying to have a, they're having a dialogue with the, with the people there who want to remain neutral. And, uh, and the Athenians scornfully say at, some, at one point, because they're hoping, they have no plan, they're just hoping to remain neutral. And the Athenians scornfully say, hope, danger's comforter. Beautiful line. So if all you've got is hope, from a human standpoint, and you've not made any plans or anything else, well, that's what, that's what, you, what comforts you in the face of danger. Um, you know, it's very difficult for some people to start planning for retirement, right? It's not that hard, but it's a horrible thing to kind of think about. So lots of people end up not being fully prepared. I'm starting to wonder about that myself right now. So yeah, but so so have a, so have a plan. Number one, have a plan. Um, uh, number two, be flexible. Because situations change, and sometimes your initial observation uh, uh, it turns out to be wrong. I mean, they have to be flexible. To, I imagine they'd be pretty flexible to say our best bet is to hang out with this prostitute here in this town. The great American historian Gordon Wood. Um, I don't know if you if you remember the movie uh, Goodwill Hunting, that the famous scene in the in the in the bar where where Will uh, decimates this grad student. One of the great historians he mentions is a guy named Gordon Wood. So when he retired from Brown University eight years ago, nine years ago, he was commonly regarded as one of the three or four best historians of the American experience, the colonial period, uh, alive. And I, I he was uh, I saw him uh, interviewed on C-SPAN. I know I, I watch C-SPAN. That's sick. Uh, but the interviewer said, the last question, you're a historian, world famous, what's the big lesson history teaches? And you know, this world famous historian said right away, without even, without even a second hesitation, things don't work out the way you plan. <laughs> Most of us know that already. We, did, we didn't need to write you know, 17 books to learn that. But that is the truth. So be flexible. Things don't work out the way you plan. And sometimes what we think God is saying to us or directing us to do, maybe we haven't quite heard it right. So remain always open to God's leading. Third, um, look for God's hand at work. Look for God's hand at work. And I think there's lots of, lots of ways to do that. Remember the promise of God. Remember this beautiful verse in Isaiah, even to your old age and your gray hairs, I am he. Right? I am he who will sustain you. I have made you. I will comfort you. I will sustain you and I will rescue you. So 
remember the promise. In looking for God's hand at work, first of all, remember the promise of God. Sustain you, rescue you, care for you. Remember God's history. As I said earlier, Judaism and Christianity are both historical religions. The fact that scholarship used to talk about the Jewish notion of history as salvation history. So there's a German word for that. Uh, um, uh, uh, Geschichte. Well, the, the German word for history is, a couple of words for history in German, but one, uh, one is Geschichte, which doesn't mean, uh, that's like our word historical. Like historical is everything that happens, right? A historical event is, I've been to three different uh, coffee spots between like, waking up this morning and coming here. I've been to two pizza and a Starbucks. I know, that's awesome. Uh, those are historical events, but they're not exactly historic events. Historic events are the things that have an influence on the future. Big, shaping events. So, uh, so religions, uh, um, the, 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 the big events. So God acts in history. So remember the history of God. God is the one who delivers. So not only can God be trusted and remember that promise, but remember that he's actually done it. And maybe reflect on your own life. Where have you seen God's hand at work? Where you were, where you were miraculously, or maybe not even miraculously, but certainly unjustifiably blessed or saved or, or something. Remember that, that as you sail you know, the, the, the little boat of your life down the river, that you aren't the only person determining its course and, and, its, and its, uh, its safety. That there's someone bigger and, 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 and who sees more than you, who cares deeply about you. So what looks like it might be a disaster from your standpoint might actually be God's hand at work. So, so have that perspective. Don't get overly uh, uh, depressed about something that looks like it's a, like it's a, like it's a defeat for you. Third, turn away from old habits. Or maybe new habits. Maybe you've developed some new habits that aren't all that healthy. Um, for most of the ancient world, uh, what people thought is that knowledge is the most important determiner for behavior, right? You may remember that Plato said that right knowledge guarantees right action. If you know the truth, then you will operate accordingly. Right knowledge guarantees right action, which of course is baloney, right? Uh, uh, we, we, all, we all do things that we know aren't good for us, you know? I, I actually uh, was at a Safeway this morning, or maybe Bel Air really early, and I was uh, tempted I encountered a situation where I could either persevere or fall into temptation. I was, and I, I, I gave in the temptation at the bakery aisle, um, and uh, you know, and bought and bought some uh, there. So I, so I gave in. Um, now I can't remember where I was going with that. Help me out. <laughs> oh yeah, yeah. So yeah, that's right. Not so I mean, I knew. I, I looked at that pastry. I looked at that pastry, and it, it had like berry poking out, and there was like. And there were several there available. But I chose the one that had clearly had the most frosting drizzled on it. 
even though I knew that probably wasn't a good idea. Right? So knowledge does not guarantee right action. And it isn't until you get to Augustine. Augustine is the one who, who, who connects, who says that what's really determinative is not knowledge, but it's the will. It's what we determine we're going to do. And like Paul, remember Paul said, that which I don't want to do, I watch myself doing. Augustine said, why is it? Why is it that my brain tells my legs, go that way, and they do? But when my brain tells my brain, don't give in to that, I go, it does anyway. So the, so the, 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 the critical area is the, is the department of the will. And Augustine said, habit. Wow, habit it, it, it's, a, it's, a, it's a slave master. Isn't this true? Don't you know this? Think about this. But you, you get used to doing something, and suddenly, what, like six months before or a year before, you would say to yourself, I will never do that, or I would find that repugnant. But you get used to it. And that just pushes out the border of what then you'll, you're, you're capable of, of, of saying yes to. So habit. Um, turn away from old habits. And, the, and the, the flip side of this is the language in the New Testament, train yourself in godliness. Train. It ain't just going to happen by accident. You need to put yourself in the place, and you develop a pattern. And it's hard at first, right? You don't be, if you haven't done any exercise in two years, you aren't going to go out the next day and, you know, and be competitive you know, in the, in the, in the one-mile run. It'll take you a little while. Before you get up to that, so you got to you got to be patient with yourself, but figure out how to train yourself in godliness. If you've fallen off track, you've fallen off the horse, like we all do. Get a plan in place to train yourself in godliness, and if you have to, as embarrassing as it is, share with somebody else what your struggle is. They pretty much got one of their own, probably. So train yourself in godliness. Fourth, submit. Submit to God in humility. Just acknowledge. I'm screwed up here, Lord. I'm ashamed of myself. I need help here. And he's going to ask you to deny yourself. And we often think about that, like, you know, pick up your cross and deny yourself, take up your cross and follow me. Like it's denying things of ourselves. I won't eat chocolate no asparagus for me, you know, give that up. That's, not, that's an easy one for me. But that's not what it, the, the text doesn't say, deny things, deny things. It says, deny yourself. That is your basic inclination. You can't deny what you haven't identified. Reckon that your basic inclination is this way, is this brokenness, is this twistedness. Reckon with that, and then seek ways to correct it. So submit to God in humility. And then I'm going to say, take a godly risk. I think those spies took a serious risk. Right? I mean, they had to trust somebody in that town. They had to trust somebody. So my second big uh, uh, category here for this text is, um, who will God use? And, uh, and that's the unlooked for answers. Because I think it does surprise all, all of us that they, they choose uh, a, a prostitute. And it just, it's like right, you know, right away, like, like that's who they were looking for. 
I can't think of a time that I've ever had anyone give me the advice, go find a prostitute. Pretty sure no one's ever said that to me. <laughs> and, I, and I think if uh, on staff at a church, like when I, when I was a youth pastor, if I had, if I had said that, you know, I, I had decided to ask a, a prostitute to be on the youth team, um, that would not have been met with, uh, with even-handed uh, listening. Some people might have said, yeah, that makes sense, that you would do that, Nystrom. But, uh, uh, but I don't think that would have even-handed listening. She's under, she's a Canaanite, and she's under threat of annihilation. We don't, we don't really know if she's a horrible woman. You know, in the ancient world, if, you're, you know, if your husband died, and she's childless apparently, if your husband died, it wasn't like you could like, go to you know, um, uh, some career college and you know, after nine months start a career as a dental you know, a, a hygienist or something. I mean, you had very few options. So part of it here is... Uh, a lot of people that, we, that in the Bible are called prostitutes, I mean, they, they, don't, they don't have a whole lot of choice in the matter. Um, there aren't, uh, and they're often, you know, they're often objectified in, uh, in Scripture. So she could also maybe be caught in that situation. But um, she probably, I would imagine, feels uh, pretty wretched about herself, too. So I think there's something commendable here is that at the, even though she's in this position, which I think the rest of culture would look down on, right? I mean, how, pretty much everybody else is a little higher up on the social status uh, pyramid than her, I think. Is there a spot lower than that in, in, in culture generally? I mean, there's a couple others that are right, right about the same, perhaps. But somehow she's been able to retain a sense that she isn't made in the image of God. And she's been alert to what's going on around her, and she becomes, uh, she affirms Yahweh's sovereignty. She, aff- she understands his purpose, accepts his purpose. And she is a savior, literally. I mean, she saves the spies. She's an oracle. She's the one who actually says, that you, you'll be victorious. So God has somehow spoken to her. So this is also really amazing. I mean, she plays a role that in Israel's history is reserved for the prophet. She's an oracle of the future. She speaks what God's going to do. Um, and uh, she responds to what she knows of Yahweh. She doesn't know everything about Yahweh, but she responds to that, uh, uh, that she knows. And she surrenders himself to him and his will. She's not worried about, I've got I've to reach a certain level of cleanness or appropriateness. She knows that God accepts her as she is, as God does for all of us. <coughs> She submits to him. And the New Testament tells us that she became the wife of Salmon and the mother of Boaz, right, of Ruth and Boaz. So she is uh, uh, the ancestor, not only of King David, but the ancestor of Jesus himself. Huh. Not the person we would choose. But then... Who would have chosen David to be king? How many, how many brothers does he have? Is it, is it eight? Seven or eight? You know, he's the last one, the least likely from human eyes. Or think about the lepers that Jesus heals, that everyone else is happy to relegate to, uh, uh, to non, essentially non-personhood. 
but he, you know, when he heals lepers, you know, if you're a leper, you're a source of uncleanness so other people won't touch you. And when Jesus heals them, he doesn't heal them from like 50 yards away, which he could do. He goes out of his way to touch them. Or the woman with the flow of blood, similarly a source of uncleanness. Anyone who touches her becomes ritually unclean. And it so crushed her that she approaches Jesus from behind and hopes without him even knowing to touch just the, the hem of his, his, his garment. Unlook for. Unlook for answers. Well, I think that tells us something that um, we, it'd be, we'd be wise to integrate into our pattern of life uh, an awareness that um, no matter how smart we are, no matter how well we know God, we should always keep a little bit of, I'm, I'm, I'm going to use the word uncertainty, and I'm gonna, what I mean by that is we should be uncertain about our own certainty. Cromwell, of all people, uttered this it's a great quote, I beg you from the depths of my bowels, consider the possibility you might be wrong. So not you are wrong, but wow, let me, let me I, I want to I go through my thinking and my spiritual discernment process one more time to make sure that the first time out it wasn't it wasn't um, Dave, emperor of his own plans, who was really seeking God's will. Dave, who can't escape the gravitational pull of his own self. But let me go through it one more time. And as, 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 as honestly as I can, be sensitive and open to the presence of God and the will of God so that um, I can discern, make sure it's his will I'm discerning and not my will I'm projecting onto him. Does that make sense? Can I, um, I don't think I told this story last week. Uh, did I tell you the story of me and Mary Rose Fitch last week? I probably didn't. Okay, good. Mary Rose Fitch and I grew up together. She was uh, 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 two houses up, and we were, I think we were like eight, and we, um, we were going to build a go-kart. And uh, we grabbed some old uh, scummy wood, and we had some t- wheels, and just a wooden thing, like with the two-by-four front axle. And, but then our older brother, Danny, got involved, and suddenly it became... An, an awesome experience and we just sort of watched him and then her dad got involved and he dragged out from underneath the house like a the steering wheel of like a 44 Oldsmobile so it's huge like like the elementary school bus driver steering wheel this huge steering wheel and uh, and and they and it was it was great it was just it was a little uh, go-kart no one to just you know gravity down the hill two by four front axle uh, and then they, he actually built like a like a like the frame for like a hood and he had some old pipe and he stuck pipes out like it was a like it was, a, you know, a hot rod. And so there was a place for one of us to sit, and then the other person would sort of kneel behind the person driving, uh, you know, holding on to the, to the back of the seat. So we'd take turns going down the hill. And uh, then that got boring, so we, aimed, we started being daring. We'd aim for the gutter and then turn at the last possible minute. That was sort of exciting. And uh, so I was driving one time, and I turned at the last possible minute, but I, I didn't turn soon enough, and the front... Uh, axle that two by four the left tire hit the curb went up and it launched and the thing went up like have you ever seen like photos of a of a of a whale jump breaching jumping out of the water turning and like landing on its back that's what the that's what the car did and uh, so it landed I landed like on my shoulder and it and it skidded about 25 feet across the road uh, and and just ripped a bunch of skin off my forehead 
And uh, I can remember uh, Mary Rose's little sister, uh, Kelly, uh, running into the house screaming, Mommy, Mommy, David's dead, David's dead. Uh, <laughs> I, was, I'm, I, can just, I, mean, I was seven, I can still remember that. So uh, I, I walked down to the garage where, where my dad was, and, um, and he, I remember like, no, no talking, no talking between us. I showed him my, my forehead. He, he uh, absorbed the situation and got the, the uh, garage first aid kit, which consisted of two items, uh, Bactine and duct tape. Those two items were the only <laughs> two items in, in, the, in, in the first aid kit. And he, and he took the Bactine and opened the bottle, sort of put, you know, put my hair like this and went, <laughs> just, you know, just doused it, like with five or six ounces of Bactine. <laughs> so a lot of the Bactine landed, like, on parts of me that weren't, injured, and I, I guess I felt that, but what I really felt was the back team that landed, right? So here's, here's my uh, image for you, that image, here's my application. Um, you know, we're better able to hear God if there's a part of us that's raw to him, that's been a little bit abused, a little bit lacerated. And actually, sometimes that God actually says that. I mean, sometimes I do that to, I to get your attention. I'm pretty committed to the empire of Dave. It comes out. I see it coming out when I drive. I even saw it today, like, at Pete's. I think it was my second Pete's. <laughs> so I'm in line. It's my turn. And the person behind the counter says, can I help you? And then the guy who was just, who was out before me, interjects himself back in and starts a conversation with the barista. So I have to wait like, like 10 seconds. And I noticed myself, I wasn't really mad or angry, but what I did was, it was kind of, what I did was I got, and I was quite happy with myself to do this, I got this kind of look, like, And I, I, know, I remember feeling like, yeah, I'm, I'm pretty, that's like an awesome point for me that I'm, what a bizarre thing, right? But that's just another example of, I'm in, totally in love with me. You're in love with you, aren't you? How do we, how do we get past that? So one of the ways is, well, that's, that, that's this image then, like I had the, the, the quote, the, the Cromwell quote. Wow, do what it takes to make sure you're open to God and not just, not just sending him a message, a prayer, but you're not really serious about it. Does that make sense? And then third, unexpected others. Wow, as we've said several times, who would have picked Rahab? Yet God cares for her. Our Jerichos are full of such people. Where's your Jericho? Think about that right now. Just think about it for a couple seconds. Where's your Jericho? There are such people in that Jericho. Maybe for you, there are such people in this room right now. We ought to confess our reluctance to welcome outsiders, and even our blindness to how hard it can be to break in. Let alone those who, who see their own past as problematical. 
Christian culture has a lot of in-group talk. You have a lot of in-group vocabulary. Foyer. What, is, what in the world is that? <laughs> you know, narthex. Oh, yeah. That's a word you hear a lot. I, I kept hearing it all day long at Pete's this morning. <laughs> Came up seven times. You know, and, and this, this notion of judging, you know, in, in, in 2 Corinthians 5, you might want to check this out later, 2 Corinthians 5, 9 through 12, Paul says, in exasperation, he's already, uh, this is 1 Corinthians, I mean, he's already, he's already, he said, I've told you before not to associate with immoral people. But then he says, as it were, <laughs> when I told you that, I didn't mean people out in the world. I meant those who are claiming that they're on the right path, etc., that they've got it all together, but really aren't. They're living a double life. So the, 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 the message there is, if I can bring it to, to today, is Christians, we, we, we shouldn't be wagging our big bad person finger at the world. Why should the world follow Christian principles? And, it, and we don't end up being very inviting. So there's a theological basis and also a practical, a practical concern here. Or think about Ephesians 2, right? This image, such a powerful passage. Paul says, you know, um, God has broken down the dividing wall, the dividing wall of hostility, and he's made the two one. This is God's big plan, to reconcile the world to himself every aspect of the world, every aspect of, of, of the human family. I think in America, as long as we're not actively hurting someone else, we're good. As long as I'm not breaking into your house when you're not there, as long as I'm not kicking your dog, as long as I'm not, not stealing the tires off your car, we're good. Passive, non-involvement, is good. Tolerance, right? Tolerance. Paul says passive or benign indifference is actually hostility. Not good. It's actually hostility. The gospel of Jesus Christ has got boundless powerful, expressive energy to reach out and welcome others. And that's a challenge for us then. How do we see, how would we see Rahab? So, uh, let's work on getting past first impressions. Let's work on seeing people as God sees them. And let's ask ourselves a couple of questions. What's in your rearview mirror that shaped you? And that you're allowing to have the power to determine the arc of your life. Habits you can break. Submit to the power and presence of God. And may it be true of us that we grow a little more every day in our ability to have eyes to see. God's hand at work. Amen?
Let's, uh, let's pray. Thank you, Father. Well, uh, where could we stop when we start by saying thank you, Father? You are the author of life. You are the one who has saved us. You are the one who has promised to walk with us. You are the one, the only one who can be trusted fully. We are yours. Forgive us for not living into your promise with all the strength and energy and wisdom that that promise deserves. Help us. Help us this day and tomorrow, this week, to grow in our ability to follow you and to see with your sight, we pray. And all God's people said,